So Rod Pyle is a space historian who's worked with NASA and JPL and the Johnson Space Center, and he's written 10 books on the history and technology of space exploration and science. And he worked on Star Trek, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, as a visual effects coordinator for three seasons, spent a decade at the Griffith Observatory in L.A. He's written on space flight and science for NASA and JPL and Caltech. So he's the real deal. He's a graduate of Stanford and the Art Center of College of Design in Pasadena a member of the National Space Society, the Authors Guild, National Association of Science Writers, and the Producers Guild of America. So if you have space questions, Rod has space answers. And I've got a few myself, so welcome to WGN Radio, Rod. Thank you very much. That was a great introduction. I wish I could make you my new agent. Ah, well, I think it's neat. I'm working on uh, Deep Space Nine must have been a real kick. It was fun, you know, because I was there in the early 90s, and it was the last few years that we were using models. Like we called them miniatures. They got right. very upset if you called them models, but the little spaceships, right? Right, right. And, and that was just great because it was really hands-on. And, I mean, the stuff they do with, with CGI is great, but it just wasn't as much fun for those of us who are actually handling the stuff to do, if you can imagine. Oh, sure. Sure, a- absolutely. And, you know, it, it's it's funny. It's not that many decades since we were uh, seeing uh, some of the earlier science fiction shows on Black and <laughs> yeah. And And you look at that now, and it is. It's, it's laughably camp. But to think yeah. how far we've come in such a relatively short period of time is amazing. Yeah, and, and even in the last, I'd say decade to 15 years, you know, there was that transition from we watch computer generated effects and go, okay, that's clearly CGI, but it's cool, you know, yeah. and, and we're okay with that. And then sometime a little after maybe the movie Titanic came out on the movie side anyway, because of leader, leading guys like pe- people like James Cameron, those effects began to, to become invisible. And now, if it's done well and they're integrated well, they're virtually indistinguishable from reality, and that's really cool and a little chilling at the same time, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll go with that chilling part. Uh, now, I'm long enough of uh, tooth to remember Alan Shepard and uh, his 90-minute uh, his flight or however long it was, straight up and straight down. But the thing that I found interesting, you know, back in the 15 minutes Douglas Edward days of the CBS Evening News, is yeah. when they'd show the uh, Canaveral and they'd show the space program and you'd see the spacesuits. I gasped the first time I ever saw one because I thought, this is just like the comic books from the 30s. How did they know? Right. Yeah, and so that does lead the the question of what, what came first because it did. It looked just like, you know, comics from decades before. Yeah, they almost looked like uh, some, like silver lamé out of some kind of really low-budget science fiction movie, but they were very cool. Those early suits um, that the Mercury astronauts wore, all they had to do was was protect them from the vacuum sitting inside the capsule. So, you know, they didn't have to be very involved. You didn't have to have a lot of flexibility in them. As you saw the program go go further through Gemini and then ultimately through Apollo, the suits got bigger and bulkier, ironically, because they had to make them easier to wear. The problem is in the pressure suit, when you're in a vacuum and you, you have to pump them up, it's like wearing a big inner tube or a tire. You know, it gets really stiff and it's tough. So they got to add cables and pulleys and bellows and all kinds of things. And, and that's why they ended up, the Apollo moon suits looked like the Apollo moon suits because yeah. they had to do all that mechanical stuff to actually make them usable. But, but you're right. I mean, science fiction often predicts the future. 
sometimes we get it really wrong. Like, you know, you're talking about that period in the 30s and 40s with the, the old pulp magazines right. that I love to flip through. And everything was about, you know, plane, airplanes that were 400 feet across with, with 40 engines on the wings. Yeah. And they had, you know, they looked like a cruise ship and big cities up in the sky. And it was all these big kind of federal programs that were going to make the future bright and higher and bigger and all that. And what happened? Instead, it got smaller and digital and very commercialized. So we don't always get it right. No, that, that, that's true. But but I don't know. I looked at the spruce goose and thought, well, maybe there's something about this. It's hard to tell. <laughs> so, uh, of course, it didn't didn't last very long, at least not in the air. Uh, so uh, here we are. We're, we're going back to the moon. Now, by the way, the idea of sending a woman, as I was saying earlier, was uh, that's what Ralph Cramden was always saying to Alice, to the moon, Alice. <laughs> and, right. uh, so, you know, he wouldn't really expect her to be going but uh, but I think uh, every every sane man has a list of women they'd like to send to the moon and so uh, with that and none of them will be going of course uh, but uh, I assume that this is symbolic we just have to send a woman well there's symbology to it and interesting I was just listening today to the press conference of the next uh, crew dragon flight up to the space station in of October and I didn't realize that uh, the co-pilot on that is going to be the first African American to actually stay in a long term residency at the space station. I, I remembered back from the shuttle days that we had uh, plenty of astronauts uh, from different cultures and of different ethnicities, and I hadn't actually bothered to sit down and check, you know, what had happened since we started transitioning to long term stays at the space station. But specific to women in flight, you know, the first woman to fly was in the early sixties, Valentina Tereshkova, Soviet Union. You know, Khrushchev wanted to make a point of having another first, and he did. And it took us a long time after that, a couple of decades, to get a woman uh, in space on the shuttle. But, you know, there's a really good argument for this. Besides the fact that it's fair and it's inclusive and all those things, there are actually people arguing early on saying, look, women make really good candidates for, for astronauts because you get the same or sometimes more brain power in a smaller, lighter package, they need less environmental control. You know, they don't breathe as much and they don't respirate as much. Um, they're much lighter. So especially if you get a woman with a petite frame, you might have 30 or 40% less mass than a, an average male astronaut. So that means you can carry more science instruments. So use a smaller rocket or something. So there's some really good arguments for that. That doesn't factor into the Artemis mission for, we hope, 2024, because they got plenty of carrying power for that. But there is a good argument there. Well, and it's also good PR, of course. And uh, I was... Well, there's that. Yeah, I was reading about the uh, uh, some of, some of the PR stuff about Artemis, uh, the unprecedented lunar exploration and the sending of women and all that that kind of stuff. And yeah. uh, my, my favorite quote about we're going to learn more from the moon than ever we ever thought possible. And the first thing I thought, well, you know, I'm a luddite here, but what did we learn from the moon in the earlier visits? Well, we, it depends on, on what you consider to be worth learning. I'm a big science buff, so for me, uh, learning about the evolution of the solar system and how the moon came to be and what we can expect to find in other moons for other planets and, and sort of the timeline of the formation of the solar system is all pretty cool stuff. But, you know, to a lot of average folks on the street, it's like, well, that doesn't put dinner on my on my table, you know. So what's the point of that? What we did learn, however, and have continued to learn since Apollo, so we brought back almost 900 pounds of rock, so yeah. we got a lot of good samples. 
what we discovered from then is a lot of it was what's the moon made of because you really need to bring something back to look at there's a lot of glass in the soil which didn't surprise us but there's a lot of aluminum there's a fair amount of oxygen there's even some water in moon rocks which was not something a lot of people expected and then we now know because of uh, some of the orbiters more recent times that there's a bunch of big water deposits on the poles especially the south pole well Water you can convert into oxygen to breathe, you can convert into rocket fuel. So we got this great potential depot of water and metals and glass, and you can even do things with just lunar rock. Uh, you can even weave fabrics out of it. So you've got all these things on the moon that now you don't have to launch from Earth anymore. So if you can start producing these things, mining them and processing them up there, the rest of the solar system is suddenly your backyard because it's really easy to get stuff off the surface of the moon. It's only got 17% the gravity of Earth, and a lot cheaper than trying to launch. Each gallon of water costs thousands of dollars to launch off the Earth. If you got it on the moon, it's right there. So that's really what's exciting about what they found. Wow. Now, I know there's a lot of non-space-related products, uh, allegedly, from the space program. I bring Teflon to mind, but I don't even know if that's true. But uh, it was interesting. There was a quote from NASA that we're going back to the moon for scientific discovery and economic benefits. We're going to get into economic benefits. If you've got questions, Rod has answers, 888-876-5593. That's 8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E. Rod Pyle from Ad Astra Magazine. And if you go to Raleigh.net, I've got links to that and more we're we're here on wgn radio all right yes i have spoken i'm raleigh james and we're talking to rod pile who is editor-in-chief at ad astra which of course is latin for to the stars but we're going to the moon at uh, coming up soon and uh, as i was saying uh, supposedly we got teflon from the space program did we uh, I, I I don't know that it was actually better for the program. There's a lot of things that were advanced for the program. Tang was around long before the program, yes. it turns out. Yes. But, uh, you know, there were coatings for the, the visors on the space helmets that were something that has uh, generated a lot of revenue since then for scratch-resistant lenses. They improved dialysis techniques. There's all kinds of different technologies. I think the main one, if you hold up your smartphone and stare at it, you know, even if you've got one a few years old, an Android or something, that's more computer processing power than the whole planet Earth had when Apollo 11 landed on the moon oh, oh, in absolutely. your hand. Yeah, ab- which, absolutely. Which really cool. And a lot of that, again, you know, these things, you hear these facts, uh, transistors were invented for the space program. No, but microchips really, their development, and this is what they're talking about, with the economic developments, even of going back to the moon. The development of these things gets pushed so hard and now with the private sector coming in aggressively with SpaceX and Blue Origin and so forth, gets pushed so hard and there's such fast advancement that we do see that there are these quantum leaps that take place often in space technology. I saw a lot of this at JPL, smaller stuff, but it's really remarkable. Like uh, there was a story I worked on about a, a radar unit that had been taken from the size of a dishwasher down to the size of a pencil eraser wow. over the course of five years because they had to, right? right? So there's a lot of stuff like that that happens. It's really, really fascinating. Well, and that's when you talk about the economic benefits, as in some of the quotes, those are the economic benefits because a lot of it winds up in use in the, uh, in the private sector here on terra firma for people who've never been on a plane, let alone a rocket ship. So uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I assume uh, the moon is our object day in interest because it's the closest 
Well, it's close. Uh, so, And what does close mean? It means you can get there quickly. You can get home quickly if you have a problem. Like um, the space station, they just discovered a little while ago that they had another small leak. It's not dangerous, but if it was dangerous, those guys could jump in a, a spacecraft and be home in a matter of hours. From the moon, it's a matter of days. From Mars, you're looking at months. So that closeness is good. Less radio delay for the signals. But the really, like I was talking about earlier, I think the really impressive thing here is when you realize how many resources are there not things you want to necessarily bring back to earth although that's part of it but mostly stuff you want to use up there to make it cheaper than ever to go back and forth to the moon and easier cheaper to go other places is what gets people so excited about it yeah, and the thought of, uh, you know, going back and forth to the moon, I think we all have thought about, well, they get there, they come back. Very few people have actually thought about they might hang out for a while and uh, perhaps create industry. But from what I can tell from these plans, uh, there certainly are some long-range plans of being there. Yeah, and as you probably know, it's not just us. The Chinese are looking very oh, hard man. at this, and they're planning well in advance. So they have the luxury of planning their space budgets out 10 years at a time. You know, we do it two to four years at a time, which is why we see the program kind of flexing back and forth under various administrations, because NASA keeps getting their marching orders changed. Not their fault. Right. But, um, yeah, there there is a lot of a lot of stuff that is good about that and exciting about that, and I, I, I kind of can't wait. I think, you know, the big change that we've all seen is the entry of people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos into this thing, where, you know, these are guys that got very, very wealthy. And when you really talk to them, both of them, they essentially say, you know what, I, I thought the Apollo program was the coolest thing, and I just got tired of waiting. So I decided to to buy and build them myself. And, I mean, this feels like a 1950s science fiction movie where the crazy guy goes in his garage and builds a moon rocket, you know? Oh, indeed. But that's kind of what they did. Yeah. And so we're talking to Rod Pyle. I have a feeling somebody has a question. 888-876-5593. Now, don't worry if you don't. I've got, I've got at least another half hour full of them. And uh, we will continue space exploration and more on WGN Radio. All right. So we are talking with author, journalist, and editor-in-chief of Ad Ast- magazine Rod Pyle who uh, had been working on a Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Now I know that's certainly not the extent of his resume but that was the part that I found particularly intriguing but he knows space, graduate of Stanford and much much more written 10 books on the subject and we're, we're talking about that. Now in addition to the uh, the lunar launch and by the way I, I give China a lot of credit because I think in part their interest is maybe to some degree what's ramping up our government's interest and saying, yeah, maybe we need to take a look at this. Absolutely. So when you saw that that announcement uh, that that Pence did back, I guess it's been two years now almost, about, okay, we're going to the moon in 2024, which overnight changed, it kind of pulled the rug out from under a lot of people and changed everything, because even the European Space Agency was saying, uh, and I'm quoting, basically, saying, you know, when I went to bed last night, we were going to the moon in 2028, and now we're going in 2024, and, you know, how are we supposed to keep up with this? But uh, in that same speech, Pence did say quite a bit about the challenges of China and so forth. And, you know, if you've been reading between the lines long enough, you know what they're talking about, which is there there is an aggressive nature to that program. There are some aggressive things about our program, too, but not... Not as clearly military-minded, I think, in most people's uh, Western observers' opinions as the Chinese program. And there's a lot of concern about 
property grabs. We, we don't really have a property rights for off-earth bodies uh, kind of system worked out yet. Basically, what we got is the Outer Space Treaty from 1967, which you might remember, that says, look, no weapons of mass destruction in space, and you can't own anything. It's basically like the Antarctic Treaty. You know, right. we're sharing this. Well, now people are going up to start doing mining and resource extraction, and we're looking for new ways to kind of slice this up and kind of look between the cracks, if you will. So that's what's happening now. There, There is a percentage of people that feel like they're trying to get there first. They may do a huge claim, and then we've got international wrestling going on for years, which is why the Trump administration came out a little more aggressively within the last few few months saying, okay, here's how we see resource rights working out. And it's, it's, it's a nudge. It's a big nudge. Well, it's interesting because in addition to all the news about Artemis and the ramping up were those releases about NASA building on their long-standing partnership with the Department of Defense. And right there, you know, you're looking at U.S. Space Force. Right. And you're thinking, what? Department of Defense? A new memorandum of understanding. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, for most people, that's, that's scary as hell because that kind of uh, brings up things that are even deeper than property rights. It kind of does, but you know, if if you if you read more about the stuff, you look back. The military has been involved with NASA since the beginning. NASA was formed in 1958, and basically, the different branches uh, of the military that have been looking at space flight agendas, which was primarily the Army and uh, the Air Force at that point, had their work slowly taken away from them, and for the most part, handed back to NASA. And there were some hard feelings there. The Air Force in particular continued trying to do things like they wanted to build their own military shuttle and they wanted to have a piece of the Gemini program, and none of that really played out the way they wanted. They wanted a space station called the Manned Orbiting Laboratory. But by the time the shuttle came around, that design was influenced hugely by cooperative efforts with the Air Force. And as you know, they've shared rockets over the years. I mean, the Mercury astronauts were all launched on ICBMs and so forth. So there's been involvement there um, to a greater or lesser degree ever since NASA started. And this is just a slightly more formalized version of that. It's funny, if you saw that original announcement Trump made about Space Force, yeah. it was pretty clear he was in- envisioning Battlestar Galactica <laughs> with guys in vipers and space yeah. helmets and stuff. And when the camera panned down to the uh, generals in the front row, they're kind of looking at each other like, yeah, this wasn't my understanding. This wasn't what we discussed. So there's a little bit of a separation there. But at this point, it's it's really mostly about robots and AI and trying to protect American assets in orbit. And that's really what it's about. We just want to protect our satellites and so forth for now. Well, if the Air Force is miffed about kind of being shunted aside for decades, they deserve it after they ignored Roswell and covered it up. So, of course, this <laughs> this brings <laughs> forth uh, the, the question of uh, uh, exactly how many extraterrestrials have been noted and not reported. Well, and, and you know, if that's all true, you can't just blame it at the feet of the Air Force. I mean, clearly there would be an agenda there that would go well further into government because I don't think that the Air Force would be capable or necessarily even willing to completely cover that up. Because let's look at it from their point of view. Um, you know, you can make an argument that they'd want to deny it, but you can also make a really good argument for both the Air Force and NASA that if this was recognized as a real thing on the NASA side, you get a huge budget increase to go find out what's going on out there. On the Air Force side, you get a really huge budget increase 
to try and bolster defense. So, you know, it's an interesting set of arguments that can kind of cut both ways, but you don't hear that second one very often. That's a a great point. Well, the thing that I keep wondering about when I hear that uh, people from galaxies I can't even find in constellations I've never heard of that are are supposedly coming (laughs) is is I know, the only thing I know about it, if they're really here, is they didn't come the long way. And so, or they'd have died en route. It takes too long. So what I want to know is, assuming they actually got here from something that many light years away, how did they yeah. do it? Well, and that is such a good question, and I thank you for asking that, because uh, it, it comes up a lot on, on late night radio, but not often from the hosts, you know. <laughs> so I really appreciate that, because here's the thing. You know, we, we have no idea how many other advanced technological civilizations civilizations there are even in our arm spiral arm of the galaxy much less the rest of the galaxy and beyond we we think and hope that there are a bunch of people out there we hope that they're nice and don't want to have us for lunch um but we don't really know but when you when you think of you know are we really so special that some some people from the other side of the galaxy are going to get in a, a metal can and travel for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands millions of light years to get here just to tip over our cows and 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 do probes right. on the lower parts of our bodies, it just seems un, un, unlikely. Like you say, I I almost think that it's more likely that you know if the whole st- idea of multiverses and so forth is correct, and you know the ability to possibly move from one dimension to the next and so forth, I'd expect the guy to step out from my closet after taking a brief teleportation trip. Why go through all the hassle of being in a starship when you haven't even talked to us yet? Well, exactly. And they, they probably would pick you because you at least have some knowledge on the subject. They usually get some hapless guy who uh, is, is missing teeth. You know, that's the other thing is why, why are they picking the dumb ones? You know, people whose intellect yeah. is kind of rivaling the cows they're supposedly tipping. But, you know, in my lore, I keep thinking, oh, they're bending time is what they're doing. I want to know how they do this. You know, so uh, uh, but yeah. you, you mentioned uh, two of the uh, dreaded uh, uh, consonants, vowels, actually. Uh, AI. Uh, I'm a gigo girl myself. I, I like to think of it all as very simple, deductive reasoning. Uh, with AI, what worries me is that some people are actually thinking of it as inductive logic, and I hope it's just fancied up deductive reasoning at this point. Or are we working on actual inducing uh, logic in terms of uh, in terms of computer systems? Well, I, I wrote a book that included a chapter on AI a few years ago. It was called blueprint for Battlestar, how science fiction sees the future or something like that. I forget the subtitle now. And it was really fun to look into it. And of course, this is a few years out of date. That was 2016 now, so things have changed ever more. But um, talking to some guys at Google, you know, they they were very clear on this. They said, look, you know, we write essentially write programs that write programs, and we don't really understand everything they're doing. And you probably remember that story a couple of years ago where there are a couple of computers basically chatting with each other and kind of, like, leaving us behind a little bit. Um, I'm not a programmer, so the last thing I programmed was in about 1973, I think. So I'm I'm well behind the power curve on that. But it is fascinating. I think what worries me more almost, though, than straight AI is the morals and ethics and goals of the people writing the programs that enable it. Oh, you know, we always assume that, that they're going to write something that's clean and safe and has our best interests in heart. And as we see with 
you know, all the overseas hacks that are attempted on American companies and American government and probably some of the things we're doing to them, there's a lot of malfeasance there. And I think when you combine that with the ability for AI to take those basic ideas and protocols and progress with them, I think the, the humanity or lack of it at the root of that is what scares me almost more. Oh, a- absolutely. And there was that great, I guess it was an editorial in one of the British papers of supposedly that a computer that had AI abilities was uh, was given uh, the, the task of writing an essay on whether AI would destroy mankind. And of course, assuming <laughs> oh, I, oh yeah, you'll love it. you got to find it. But anyway, the, uh, the deal was that the computer basically said, I have no desire to do that, but your unscrupulous program will make me so we really wow yeah, yeah well at least it didn't say kill all humans or no, something no, that it, would have been worse it, it absolutely didn't it it put all the blame on us uh, us mammals and uh, but it was is interesting to read and again like the computers talking to each other and all that and programs writing programs that still for the most part is a form of deductive logic which i am much more comfortable with than uh, than thinking about uh, that we're developing things that actually can induce from thin air and yeah. uh, you know hopefully hopefully we're not there but we'll find out exactly where we are coming up in moments because yeah i'm not done with questions but if you want to get in here well the floor will be yours otherwise i'll continue to prattle on with rod pile from ad astra magazine and i was just looking online at some of the stuff and there's a link by the way on raleigh.net to ad astra it is the magazine of the national space society and the current issue is fascinating so check it out I'm Raleigh James. It is WGN Radio. We're having a fine time talking with Rod Pyle, editor-in-chief of Ad Astra magazine. You can see the whole thing online. And I'm sitting here actually with a copy of the complete Sky Masters of the Space Force. Yeah, Jack Kirby and Wally Wood at their finest. And as I flip through the pages, I'm thinking, okay, well, it was in the 30s. Actually, this is a daily in about 58 in the papers. and uh, But they, they sure got a lot of things looking looking right. And there they are on the moon. And that's, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Sky Masters of the Space Force, uh, Rod, but you might want to check it out. I never have. I, I know those artists from collecting comics as a kid, but I didn't realize they had done something like that so early. Oh, yeah. Well, and of course, remember in, in 54 when they had that whole thing that comics caused juvenile delinquency, they really right. had to, to change the tune of what they were doing. And uh, yeah, you, you'll like uh, you'll like Sky Masters. The other thing that I know you've read, it's impossible to me that you haven't, is Andy Weir's The Martian. Yes, and, and the sequel to the book. Yeah. And I thought that was just terrific writing. And I, I thought I thought it was interesting that originally he, he did it as a self-published thing. And, yeah. Uh, how it took off from then, but just uh, just fascinating to uh, to have fun reading reading that. Also fascinating, like you had mentioned, that the private sector, those with deluxe bucks, are jumping into uh, into the game. Uh, sometimes just maybe for space tourism or whatever, but we're also starting to see with the advent of. Uh, of uh, fifth generation of 5G uh, that maybe there's going to be a lot more space junk. Yeah, and specifically, uh, I, I think the big one, I mean, there's a number of companies looking to start getting broadband satellites up, but so far Elon Musk and SpaceX are the only ones that have really taken the, the big first steps. And he's launching, gosh, I guess at this point about every three weeks, mm. another batch of, uh, of Starlink satellites. You know, you hear different numbers about how many are going to be up there, 12,000, 26,000, 40,000. The big picture he has is up to somewhere in the low 40,000 number, but he's up to, I think, 
over 800 at this point or close to it, and I think maybe a little less. But that's like basic operational level. He's, he's got a lot more to get up there before it's really fully functional. And what is worrisome about these is they're low-altitude satellites, and because they're not geosynchronous, meaning they hover in one spot over the same place all the time, so so far out, there's a lot less latency. So the good thing is, you know, the signal goes up and comes back very quickly. The bad news is they're in similar orbits to space stations and orbital other orbital missions and other orbital satellites. So they're being very careful, and he's been pretty responsible about figuring out how to deorbit them when their their lifetime is up, which may only be a, a matter of a few years, depending on on uh, how they do, and and about having them be able to avoid collisions and maneuver out of the way and so forth. But as you as you say, there's a lot of stuff up there already. There's a lot of old rocket boosters and blown up pieces mm-hmm. of Russian space junk, and American satellites don't work anymore. So eventually, we're going to have to figure out how to do something about this stuff, and that's a big area of concern and a big area of business opportunity at this point. Oh, yeah, yeah, to be the cleanup man for that. But you mentioned my favorite word out of this, which is latency. And, of course, uh, as you well know, that's why anybody who says they're offering you satellite broadband uh, now, just laugh them off the the premises. Now, I admit I'm a broadband hog. If I see more than five milliseconds of ping, I'm put out. And so I I do wonder. I know it'll, it'll be lower orbit, which is good, but I do wonder exactly what that ping time is going to resolve ultimately. Well, they're going to be up, but I think between three hundred and four hundred oh. miles. Yeah, I thought you were going to Which say. Is, I thought you were going to say four hundred milliseconds. I was about to fall out of the chair. No, no, no. I don't. I don't actually know what the latency time will be to tell you oh. the truth. But that's closer than a lot of yeah. stuff. You know, between the up and down, that's going to be less than than in many cases going across the earth. Right. Depending on how it's been routed, so it may not be too bad. But I think that's only part of it. You know that that's not the strongest uh, arrow in his quiver. I think what's more compelling, and I was talking to Steve Jurvetson, who was an, an early investor in SpaceX back in 2008 about some of this, and he, you know, he's a billionaire, so he's, he's set for life, but he was really excited about the idea that, you know, he said, think of how many brilliant minds there are in parts of the world that don't have access to broadband right now that can Absolutely. join this conversation. No, you're so he's right. talking about Africa, parts of India, and I mean, there's so many places where they have either terrible internet or none at all, and for a couple hundred bucks, and probably in five years, maybe $40, $50, you can have a ground station, yeah. you're set, oh, so it'll be great. I can't wait, but uh, yeah, someone just came in to club me saying, it's time for the news, so it's time to go, but Rod, okay. <laughs> Rod we'll do it again, I hope. Thank you. Anytime. All right. Thanks for joining us. Rod Pyle of Ad Astra Magazine. All right. Open lines next on WGN Radio.